Um, but today is Christmas Eve, and Mark Brulot has been working on a message for Christmas Eve for quite some time. And we're so glad to have him with us. Things ran a bit over today, but we still want him to share everything that he's prepared because we know. <laughs> who wants Mark to say everything he's prepared? tell him. Who, who should tell him? And also, it was a perfect sermon illustration for today, so you'll see why. But I was like, wow, Zane, thank you for that. Um, when I was a kid, I was lucky to live enough in a home. I don't know about you, and I know not every childhood was like this, but Christmas morning was absolutely magical. I looked forward to it so much. I could not wait to wake up in the morning, get downstairs, and see what Santa had left under the tree. Uh, my parents went all out, totally all out. My sister and I would open presents for hours. Uh, it culminated in, of course, the big, huge Lego set that I had asked for. Uh, and so, and then a hunt. My dad would uh, leave clues all over the house, a tradition I still do, and we'd run all over the house. My sister and I would find a big present at the end. And then, of course, once that's done, the, the grandparents come over and all the aunts, and there's more presents, and Grandma and Grandpa gave, of course, the biggest present of all. So it was just an absolutely wonderful time. And, and having kids uh, is, is a lot of that magic as well. Um, so that sounds absolutely idyllic. I, I, I would think. Anybody else have a Christmas morning like that? Anybody else? Like, yeah? I know, not, again, not everybody, but you just feel that anticipation, that magic. And that's a snapshot of my childhood. And it sounds pretty idyllic, I know. Christmas Eve, waiting for such amazing things. Um, out of 365 days of the year, uh, that one night was, was spent uh, waiting for something really exciting. This was well offset, though, by the other 364 nights. Uh, <laughs> and I know I've talked about this before up here, and you're like, wow, Mark's really working out some trauma. So thank you for that. Um, if you know me at all, you know the absolute terror that filled the other 364 nights of my year. Anybody uh, heard me talk enough about my life to know what that is? Any guesses? Me laying awake at night, the other 364 ways, nights of the year, waiting and waiting for any minute now, especially in 1988 when the book came out, 88, <laughs> 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Uh, I was nine years old. Yeah, the rapture, guys. Three, every night I laid in bed terrified of the rapture. Not because I was a particularly bad kid, but because I had not, I went to a Pentecostal church. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I had not spoken in tongues. When you did not speak in tongues in the church that I went to, you did not have the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are going to hell, okay? 
So when the rapture was going to come, I knew. It wasn't a question of maybe. It was, you were, I'm going straight to hell when Jesus comes back. Uh, and so that's what I was waiting for uh, every night of the year. And Christmas Eve was just this magical night where there was enough excitement to maybe overshadow the shadow, the deep shadow that, uh, that, uh, was, that I was waiting for the rest of the year. Uh, so, uh, Christmas is this temporary relief from terror. Uh, <laughs> I got older, and as I look back, it occurs to me that I've always been waiting. And I just put some things on a slide here, things that uh, my life has been waiting for. Yours probably looks the same. To finish high school, finish my degree, get on, go to Korea, get home from Korea, get married, go to seminary, be done seminary, and sickness or injury to heal, get a job in a church, have kids, a vacation to come. My kids to sleep through the night, move to St. Stephen, get out of my job in a church, grieving it, and get offered a permanent contract at SSU. <coughs> make more. Let's go in. Make more money in my own business, make even more money in my own business, COVID to end, my parents to love me well, a couple of wars to end, better health care, civic leadership, more compassion society. We're always waiting for something, aren't we? There, nobody here is not waiting for something to happen to make things better. And we touched on that this morning. It is what we do. It's the human condition. And that's why it's so easy, I think, for me, uh, so timely to come up here uh, on the ultimate Sunday of Advent and talk about waiting. Because who among us is not waiting for something to be better? Advent is where we stare into uh, a crazy world and say... Okay, the cries of our heart can be heard collectively. So much of that was said this morning, absolutely beautifully, perhaps better than I could say today. This is the time when we acknowledge that we're all waiting for something better, because surely something better is coming. Something better must be coming. For Christians, spoiler, that's Jesus. That's the theme of this time of year. But let's face it, Another major reason why we love this year and talking about the child is the child is the perfect, beautiful metaphor for anyone, uh, for whatever you're waiting for, to come and make things better, so much better than they are, and maybe as, as good as they could be. But I want to suggest this morning that uh, on this final Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of love, that waiting actually might be harmful. Maybe we shouldn't be waiting at all. Maybe waiting is entirely unchristian, or maybe it's unfortunately Christian, but entirely unlike the way of Jesus. So, how are we going to get there? Well, I want to show you how waiting is absolutely nothing new. As early as 2,500 years ago, ancient stories were written that were very Adventian in their spirit, even before Advent was a thing. One of the great first poems, ancient poems that we have, uh, was set in the story of a woman called Hannah. Now Hannah, as the story goes, lived in Israel about 3,000 years ago. And this is a time when her people were victimized and harried day and night, invaded, attacked constantly by more organized and well-established nations around them. Uh, granted, they, their people had moved into a land called Canaan, which the Canaanites argued, hey, we're already here, and so it led to all kinds of conflict in the story. But Hannah's life was so emblematic 
of either dealing with hunger or famine or drought or getting attacked and having everything you own carried away. You can read all these stories uh, by the Philistines or the Hittites or the Ammonites or the Amalekites and with all those eans and ites around, uh, life just really sucked. And so all the average person really wanted was peace, was justice, was to have enough. That would have been absolutely amazing. They are waiting for a savior, but a savior was nowhere to be found. And that's why we get the story that sets the scene for all of Israel's history to follow. This scene is not just another one of those stories. This is the inaugural story. And so just like so many origin stories of the greatest heroes of the Hebrew canon, I've taught my kids to look out for these motifs that repeat over and over, Hannah is one of two wives to a man called Elkanah. And of course, do you think those wives are getting along? No. One wife, of course, is having many children, just cranking them out. The other wife, Hannah, of course, has, say it with me, no children at all, right? And both wives are constantly fighting. You see this over and over. It's a motif in the stories. Uh, and to make it worse, life again with the invasions, terrible family life. This is just a terrible, terrible world and a terrible life for Hannah. And so Hannah goes up to the tabernacle, the holiest place in all the land. And she makes a bargain with God. She says, if you give me a child, I will donate that child to the tabernacle permanently. Well, God seems to take her up on that. She has a baby. And when the day comes to give him up to work at the holy site for his whole life, her prayer is this Hebrew poem that is so epic and it so resonates that it becomes real canon. Uh, it becomes the basis for another poem by another woman a thousand years later who will bring hope and salvation to the world. And so that is why we're looking at this today. Because for Hannah and her people, they're waiting for a child, they're waiting for a deliverer, for anything to make life less hellish. And her prayer, it's pretty long, <laughs> and it goes something like this, my heart rejoices in God, in God my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Now you don't have to get too long into this poem to see, is this actually what's happening? Is Hannah saying something that is actually happening? No. This is the ultimate song of hope. There is no deliverance yet. There is no victory. There is no God doing all the things that are in this incredible poem. And so, ultimately, this is Hannah saying she's uh, waiting for a deliverer, and her heart is full of hope that this child that she is giving to the service of God is going to finally make these things happen. It culminates in God will give strength to God's king and exalt the horn of God's anointed. So this is a woman that's seen some major pain and trial. She's waiting for, of all things, a king. Now, if you know where this is in the history, Israel's never had a king by this point. And for some reason, she is projecting that a king will fix everything, right? Won't a king fix everything? That's why we're so kicked around. We just need a king. So apparently there's this idea that a king is going to be the deliverance that everyone is waiting for, and then everything will be fine. 
Well, her boy Samuel grows up to be the first major prophet in the era of prophets and kings. Because Samuel becomes the one to anoint the very first king of Israel. And after that, all that waiting, Samuel, whose mom waited for a deliverer, takes that horn that she prayed about, that was foreshadowed, fills it with oil, and pours it over the head of King Saul. And finally, everything's perfect. The end, you can go home. <laughs> this is the agent of promise, right? Well, if you know how the story goes, no. Saul is chosen by Samuel and by God, and it's one of the biggest oopses in history. Um, of course, now he's just so bad that all the people <laughs> wait, even while he's king, for someone better to come. We have a king. Let's get King 2.0 here, all right? Then everything will be great. So there's more waiting for someone who might be a king after God's own heart, maybe. Who might even be a, a musician, right? Sexy. Who, write, who will write poems and songs and maybe be a giant killer, even. Uh, and a warrior and a ladies' man. <laughs> that'll, that'll make it all okay. <laughs> well, spoiler... One of the guys in this picture is just that. A kid named David comes along, and he is God's anointed. He will unite all the 12 tribes that are constantly fighting and having problems, and finally bring peace through strength and through wisdom, and be a really, really, really good guy, right? So Samuel anoints David, and Saul gets replaced. And that fixes everything, right? <laughs> You're like, I wish it did because we go home. Well, if you know how that David thing goes, it's not much better at all. There's a time of peace, but there's also the murderness and the rapiness and the court intrigue and all kinds of injustice. David is not a good dude. He raises a standing army, which gets him in trouble with Yahweh, who said not to do that. The people are now waiting for someone who is a little less murdery and rapey and whose kids are not quite as disorganized. So maybe one of David's successors will fix everything. Well, David's oldest never sees the throne because he gets assassinated by his brother called Absalom. Absalom is murdered by David's bodyguard. Really great story. You should read it. And the next son in line is ready to take over because, hey, we're going through sons like crazy. But he gets executed by another son who sounds like a real scallywag because he executed that guy. But that guy's name is Solomon. And he's a good guy, right? <laughs> Solomon's going to fix everything. Oh, my gosh. Are we still waiting here? The palaces are getting nicer, if you notice. Uh, there's more wealth. There's wisdom. There's riches. One of the most powerful nations in the world now, Israel is. So is this progress, I guess? Um, justice, peace, plenty under the Lion of Judah, his name was. Um, Solomon dies, and his son takes over. And his son is such a D-bag, we don't have time to go into it. Um, he kicks off his, I will just say, he kicks off his... Uh, his monarchy by telling people who complain to him how hard their lives is that he has a bigger penis than his dad. That's literally in there. So, what a great guy. This is not getting better. So that's why for a, a, another hundred, a few hundred years of war 
and terrible monarchs and empire, the prophets keep rising up. They're like the only hope at this point, excoriating the rich for taking, exploiting the poor, excoriating the lawmakers for making laws that favor the rich and are written by the rich for the rich. So the prophecies are having a real rise as life gets more and more hellish for everybody. And the people are doing what? Waiting. Waiting for a new era to finally freaking break in where we might get some traction, reassurance that God is up to something here. Waiting in the hopelessness and things seem more hopeless than ever, especially when the Son of God arrives with His army. Who's the Son of God, by the way? Oh, you know I'm trapping you. <laughs> it's Caesar Augustus. He was the original Son of God. So he comes tromping into Palestine uh, and brings good news. That's where we get that word. Peace on earth. That's where we get that expression. <laughs> Uh, the Romans said, we're here to bring good news and peace on earth. How come you're not all happy <laughs> that we're here? Uh, if you just surrender to Rome, everything will be perfect. We are what you've been waiting for, everybody. Roman peace through conquest. More waiting. Romans are actually waiting for complete conquest to, to quell all the rebels. Uh, Judahites, people who live in that area, are of course waiting for their rebels to get some traction and kick the Romans out. And they're reading their scriptures and saying, where is God? Enter into all this mess finally. Finally, we're almost done waiting, right? Mary, a woman about to have a child of promise. So filled with promises, this child, that Luke inserts this incredible story right at the beginning a prayer, and it's a prayer that every Jewish reader would have seen the parallels because every Jewish reader would have known Hannah's prayer that was already in their Bibles. They'd understand the significance of what is being said. Hannah, Hannah kicked off what was supposed to be a new era of peace and God's reign on earth, and Luke is now saying, no, no, don't worry, this is the God, this is the King. And so Mary's prayer is very, very similar. My soul magnifies God. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God has looked with favor on the lowliness of the Almighty's servant. God has scattered the proud, etc., brought down the powerful. God has helped servant Israel in remembrance of God's mercy. According to the promise God made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever, they are clinging to hope now as they wait for this child of promise to grow up and finally fix everything. This is Luke's way of saying, this is the guy. The guy that history has been waiting for. And then he comes, and he's 30, and he starts what we call his ministry. The one people start calling Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for the anointed one, going back to Hannah's prayer. Uh, where you would anoint a king. And of course, his name is Yeshua, which means God is salvation. I mean, all the ducks are lined up in a row for this guy. Uh, so will this Jesus of Galilee finally grow up and start kicking some ass and bringing peace on earth? Because that's what everyone's waiting for. Well, Jesus might have kicked unass when he rode into Jerusalem. Couldn't, couldn't resist. Uh, which was a clear reference when he did that to Solomon. That is how Solomon rode into the city. So Jesus is saying, I am 
a monarch. Uh, we like to think of Jesus as a, mon as a bit of a wallflower. But he's, he's riding in on a donkey, which is how kings entered cities that were conquered. Uh, but I mean, overall, what a massive disappointment Jesus was. Am I right? <laughs> Not comfortable saying that? <laughs> I mean, he came so close to smashing the patriarchy and overthrowing the empire. He kicks off his public run by standing up in the synagogue and saying he's there to free prisoners, heal the people, bring good news to the poor. So that's a great campaign speech. A whole bunch of people on board. Then he seems to be starting a movement by recruiting anyone and everyone with a massive campaign of inclusion. And then he starts doing weird things, though, like going out to the desert. And, of course, everybody knows that's where rebels organize. So people follow him out there and be like, okay, this guy's ready to smash some stuff. Uh, and what does he do? He feeds them a nice lunch and teaches the Beatitudes and then sends them home. <laughs> Like, that is not what anyone was expecting. 5,000 people in the desert. That's where you organize your army and come rushing back into the city. Not what he did. Then he starts telling Jews to love Romans and Romans to love Jews and Jews to love Samaritans. Oh my gosh, he'll eat with anybody. Then there is a bit of a sign where he goes to the temple, tears things up. So people are like, okay, good, good, okay. Jesus is finally getting his mojo. He throws some things around the temple. The temple's a terrible place. It exploits the poor. It is the seat of power, collaborating with Rome. It's finally here. But then Jesus really doesn't have any follow-up, does he? He just uh, leaves, gets himself arrested, gets executed very quickly. Uh, and uh, that's the end of that. So they're waiting to see what happens. Well, thankfully, they don't have to wait three days because Jesus gets resurrected by God. Okay, good. He's back. No, he just leaves. <laughs> so, I mean, he leaves with so much freaking work to be done, too. Like, this is the thing. And I love the paintings where you just, I would have been one of those guys. Like, what, the last question that he gets asked, even as he's leaving, he's, even after he's done all the things for three years, you think his disciples would get it. I love that they wrote this into the story. Is the last question, Jesus, will you now? establish the kingdom of Israel? Like, is it... You're going to do it now, right? Like, maybe before you leave, or slight as you leave. <laughs> and Jesus just says, um, yeah, no, nobody, nobody knows the times. Or something very ambiguous. Any pieces up. And then what do his followers do? Well, to their credit, they get to work, and they, and they start doing and replicating the kind of things that Jesus was doing. Feeding widows, feeding the orphans, getting Jews and non-Jews into the same room together, into each other's houses, sharing meals, redistributing wealth. It is quite a time. It is Woodstock 30 AD 34 or something. Um, and so here is... By about 300 years later, I love this. This is a quote from the emperor about people who are following Jesus. It is driving the Roman establishment and, uh, and the power absolutely bonkers. Uh, this is Julian, the, the emperor, writing about Christians at the time. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our priests, <laughs> the Romans, then I think the godless Galileans, remember they're godless because they don't believe Caesar is God, so they're godless, uh, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. So their reputation was philanthropists, the earliest followers of Jesus. I love that. It is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, the errant holiness of their lives, because again, he's like, they're living wrong. 
that has what has that has done the most to increase atheism. Again, atheism at the time meant they don't believe that the Romans are the gods. They're believing in this other Jewish guy who got executed. What a bunch of idiots. So things are, I think, going pretty well for a while. Maybe, maybe things are, maybe Jesus did have an impact. But really quickly, uh, it becomes about uh, building cathedrals and selling guilt and absolution and making sure all the citizens confess and get baptized, especially people in power, uh, because then we can get everybody ready for heaven. And don't worry about your life now. Jesus might come back, uh, although, you know, it's doubtful a few hundred years in. Uh, but you'll die and you'll go to heaven. So that's really what matters, right? Off in the future. Just wait. Just wait to die or wait for Jesus to come back or something. But this is what we are doing. Get with the program, okay? So Constantine, etc., churches, Christianity becomes a religion. We're still waiting to die to go to heaven or for Jesus to come back and take us all to heaven. Uh, so Christianity, I'd say, is a massive disappointment at this time. Uh, it doesn't seem like anything is happening. Jesus isn't coming back. But that's okay, because Christians then concoct another possible fix, something else to wait for. Uh, Christendom, okay, so that's where we, maybe we are all Christians now, but that still doesn't seem to be doing it. So we just got to go to the other nations and convert them uh, any way that we can, really. Just get them to freaking confess. The point of a sword, defeat their armies, take over their towns. Because, and I went to seminary with people that still believe this, but um, amazingly, uh, we just, if we convert the whole world, then Jesus will come back. <laughs> still freaking waiting. Just waiting around for something to happen. I could go on and on, but I won't. What's the point I've been making here? With our, that little very reductionist gallop through history, I can see it. It's this, and hopefully you see the pattern. Oh my gosh, we can't stop waiting, and we can't stop repeating the pattern of waiting. It's how we're wired. Now, I think the waiting is a positive thing about humanity. We're filled with hope. It allows us to hope. It allows us to dream and know that something better is out there. But waiting, especially as a religious program, is either escapist on one end of the spectrum or victimizing on the other end of the spectrum. That is what we see over and over as a result of our waiting. That is how waiting as a Christian religion can be so dangerous especially when you baptize it all with doctrine or theology. Because on the one hand, you have what kept me up at night. There's lots of great rapture art, by the way, i got to say. Just Google it. <laughs> it's not Renaissance. Nobody in the Renaissance was doing it. <laughs> all these, these seem to be all 100 years old or so, 150 years old. Imagine that. The world is not my home, right? I grew up sing, singing those songs. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. There's no redeeming it. So we just wait for the massive divine intervention and just pull the plug on the whole thing and take the goodies and leave the baddies. And anyway, it's going to be a major upheaval, but that'll fix everything. That's the one hand. The other hand, of course, is something is poisoning the purity of our families, our nation, our culture, our church, our kids, our whatever. Something is poisoning the purity. We need to get more pure. We need to cut the cancer out 
and wait for our, we need to get to doing that, cutting out the cancer, and then waiting for that program to take full effect. We have seen that in history, in terrible ways. The rapture doesn't keep me up at night anymore. If anything keeps me up at night, it's more this end of the spectrum. Why are we constantly seeing these results of what it's like to wait? As humans, we would be waiting anyways, we always have. Hopefully that little survey showed you for thousands of years. This is yet another way that I love looking at the life of Jesus and saying, well, wait a minute. If we're supposed to live like Jesus, Jesus like a guru, like a light, like a guide, as a friend of mine once said, Jesus is at least an ethic. Maybe, if he, maybe he's the savior of the world and all that stuff that Christian theology says. But if you follow Jesus, at least, at the very least, Jesus is an ethic. Somebody to look at and say, how do I live? It seems to me like Jesus was not waiting for anything. Waiting was not in Jesus' vocabulary. I looked. <laughs> you can't find Jesus talking about waiting or himself waiting. He's healing and feeding and clothing and including and loving and peacing and hoping every day. But that's what Jesus did. Now the people around him in the story are constantly waiting. Like, He's going to do more than just this crap, right? Like he's actually going to start really doing something important. <laughs> People were waiting for the kingdom of God, right? Even when he left, I said, they asked him that. But he always looked back at them and he said, the kingdom of God is in you. The song this morning, we heard it said, that love is inside. That I told you about the day, the morning that Jesus stood up in a synagogue and declared what he was here to do. Free the oppressed and the captives and bring good news to the poor. And he finished it by saying, today that's fulfilled. He started. It started. He's basically saying, stop waiting for this. <laughs> Other people were waiting for Jesus to do the saving for them. Jesus said, well, take up my yoke. Take up my way. Actually, I'm the way. Are you going to prepare a place for us? Uh, yeah, but you can't come there. The cross, the crucifixion, you won't endure that. But uh, I am in you. I am the way and I am in you. That's the very mystical John way of putting it. Uh, others are waiting to finally be pure enough. That was a major hang-up of the culture. I gotta go to the temple, I gotta, I gotta excoriate, get rid of my sins. And Jesus was walking around saying, your sins are forgiven. That pissed a lot of people off because they weren't doing it properly. They weren't getting it out properly. They weren't self-flagellating well enough. Jesus was just walking around saying, your sins are forgiven. You're loved by God. You're worthy. Sounds like it's here to me, the life of Jesus. And then at the end, when Jesus leaves and says, don't worry about asking when the kingdom is going to come, uh, he says, go, and I'll give you divine power to do what I did. And that's the whole book of Acts, is, is people being little Jesuses the best that they could. So, did Jesus never wait? Of course he waited. He was human. He couldn't not wait. He waited for insights, he waited for people to answer his questions that he asked them, he waited for his disciples to be a little less daft, keep waiting. But he wasn't waiting for a better king, he wasn't waiting for a rapture, he wasn't waiting for a Christian nation, he was waiting for more people to do the way. So, 
As much as we talk about waiting for Christ to come in the Advent season, Advent, of course, does not mean waiting, does it? You know this. Advent means arrival. The season of Advent means here, now. So just like Jesus said till he was blue in the face, the answer is here. Love is here. Love in the face of even lovelessness. None of us needs to wait to be loved, to give love, to be worthy of love, or to love the enemy. So is waiting harmful? Well, I would say it depends on what you're waiting for and how you're waiting and what you're saying about your waiting. Wait for Santa, wait for presents, wait for a time of rest, wait for healing, wait for grief to pass. <clears throat> All that is human. But in terms of answering that question, when is the kingdom coming? How long will we have to wait? Or what will you do with your one wild and precious life? Or how are you making the world better the way that you can? Well, Advent reminds me, and that's what I wanted to share with you today, don't wait for a Savior, because what saves us is the way of the one that Christians call Savior, the way of love that takes care of those in need. Love that invites the lonely, love that cares for land, love that works for equality, love that includes enemy. And that love has always been here already. That's what Jesus showed us. And Jesus believed that there was no act of love too insignificant to change the world. Every act like that is what makes peace, joy, love, and hope come now. Merry Christmas, everyone.